After hosting our retreats at our rented facility on Maui, we asked the local Sangha members to help us take all of the accoutrements for the retreat back to our home for storage, all of the zafus and zabutans and linens and cooking equipment and things like that. So it takes a crew of people several hours to disassemble, take it back, put it into storage. And at the end of one of these retreats, I was looking around after we had everything put back in storage, and I saw a box of things left over from the kitchen. So I went over to the box, and I rummaged around, and I picked up this box, and I said to my friend Duke, Duke, how would you like a box of wheat-free, sugar-free, gluten-free, dairy-free, chocolate-less-chocolate-chip cookies? (laughs) He said, there are some things in life I can do without. (laughs) So tonight I want to talk about... (laughs) Cookies! Those things in life that we can do without. But I want to put it in the context of the paramis, are these uh, four wholesome qualities of mind that the Bodhisattva had to perfect in order to become a Buddha. And they're the wholesome qualities of mind that we too uh, practice in our household life. They're the practices of household life uh, in order to prepare our own mind for liberating knowledge. And their qualities of mind, like loving-kindness, equanimity, generosity, sila, uh, living in harmony with one another, patience, truthfulness, resolve, renunciation, energy. And when we hear these qualities, there's nothing that exotic or esoteric or even Buddhist about them. They are the qualities that good human beings worldwide have, in some degree, in every culture, in every village, values those people who have those kinds of qualities. And yet they are the very qualities that we can practice, we have the opportunity to practice every day in our uh, domestic, civic, social, professional Uh, roles, relationships, responsibilities. I mean, really, is there ever a day go by when you don't have the opportunity to practice patience? If you could remember that patience was a practice. Or generosity, or truthfulness. I mean, these are, they're not far away, and it's not like you have to have a lot of guidance and instruction we just have to remember that oh, this way of responding to situations in life is an option over our react, deeply conditioned reactive habits of responding out of irritation or frustration or attachment or expectation, entitlement or something. And so it's important that we recognize these and begin to really build a life or 
build a life around them so that we infuse our lifestyle with these qualities because to do so really prepares the, the heart and mind for awakening to the truth the, the adult facts of life that I spoke about the other night it's not easy to open to those truths and so we need the preparation of a wholesome mind so when we come on a retreat like this we leave the familiar family, friends, distractions habits <coughs> and we come here to undertake a training, a discipline in awareness and understanding because we, we understand that our happiness in some, in some way, we understand that our happiness is not just dependent on what we have and what we do, how much we consume, but it really has a lot to do with how we, how our mind relates to, how our heart relates to the stuff of life, the challenges of life, the acquisitions of life. And we come to understand that there is a subtler, maybe more enduring uh, kind of happiness that is not dependent on things, people, activity, distractions, but it's more dependent on the quality of our own mind. So tonight I want to speak about oh, one, one other thing. All of these paramis are practices of letting go. Letting go of one thing or another. Letting go of a lot of things. And in fact, if you remember the talk on the Four Noble Truths, the second Noble Truth is craving, is the cause for dukkha. Craving in the form of attachment, aversion, clinging. And this craving is to be abandoned. Like the first Noble Truth of dukkha is to be investigated. Craving is to be abandoned. And what the practices of the the paramis are all practices of letting go. Letting go of behaviors and ideas and assumptions and beliefs about ourselves. Letting go of all kinds of uh, default, baseline, kind of reactive, dysfunctional strategies we have for dealing with the challenges of life. They're also all practices of mindfulness, meaning remembering to recognize the present moment and if there's an opportunity to practice one of the paramis or to respond with one of the paramis, to take that opportunity. They're all practices of <laughs> happiness because they lead to letting go and greater happiness. And they're all practices of joy, leading to peace. So, we know the, and we've heard a lot about, and we may have practiced some of the these paramis like loving-kindness or equanimity, and certainly sila, practicing the precepts. But we don't hear about all of them equally. You know, we don't hear a lot about resolve or determination. We don't hear a lot about renunciation. So the practice of renunciation I want to speak about tonight because it's generally all of these kinds of qualities of mind involve renunciation. And renunciation is a movement in our heart from 
a, a kind of happiness more dependent on sense pleasures, getting, having, doing, becoming, and moving to a more refined, enduring happiness of peace <coughs> through understanding. Now, when we hear the word, or when you hear the word renunciation, or being a renunciate, a lot of times the image that comes to mind, certainly mine, is some, you know, severely disciplined, strident, skinny, you know, hungry, <laughs> deprived in some way, person who's kind of giving it up, renouncing. And that's not, that's not what the Buddha's pointing to at all. But we do have these two views of the Bodhisattva, 29 years living in, the, in the, his father, father's palaces or luxurious homes, enjoying the sensual life, and then six years of severe ascetic renunciate discipline, and finding the middle way, finding the, the, the way between these two extremes, <coughs> which is midway between the denial of renunciation or asceticism and the indulgence of sensual pleasure. And he characterizes his understanding and his realization as the happiness of peace through renunciation. So, as we head into talking about renunciation, it's quite a challenge to find role models in our culture and our society of those who are renunciates and, and to use another word those who live simply contentedly and uh, those type of people don't make the news <laughs> and yet we know that there are, there are people who live very simply and live with a lot of integrity and uh, really live quite well without all that's available to us these days Buddha said, if by renouncing a lesser happiness one attains to a happiness that is greater, then the wise will pursue that happiness which is greater. So he's not saying that you don't have to let go of some kinds of happiness, but he's saying if you see that you could have a greater happiness, and a greater happiness here means maybe more subtle, more enduring, more, uh, I don't want to say impactful, but more integrated in our heart. There was an experiment done with children, young children, now, 30, 40 years ago, where they, the tormenting psychologist had these subject children in a room, and they offered them a piece of candy or a candy bar, and they said, this is yours, you can have it. Uh, i got to go out of the room for a while, but when I come back, if you still have your candy bar or your piece of candy, I'll give you another one. But if you've eaten it, that, that, that's the only one you get. So they go out of the room, turn around and watch the kids <coughs> through the mirror. And some kids were really decisive. Take that candy, open it up, eat it. <laughs> got that. Others would just kind of set that candy aside and just wait, because they wanted too greater happiness, you know. <laughs> and a lot of them would just like, yeah, they'd look at it and they'd go, yeah, yeah. You know. 
smell it and feel it and maybe even unwrap it. And just like, I want it, but I want two. What they found now, 30, 40 years later, those who had the ability to just set it aside, to set aside the temporary happiness of one for the greater happiness of two, have done really well in life than those who were the immediate consumers. It's true, they still follow them after 30, 40 years. That's the Okay. So, renunciation. Dibbo Kinsey Rinpoche, great Tibetan teacher of the last century, said, renunciation implies the strong wish to free oneself not only from life's immediate sorrows but from the seemingly unending cycle of conditioned existence. And with this renunciation comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit and status. Now let me ask you, have you ever felt kind of like disillusioned with the treadmill to acquire, to have, to become, to get more gratification, more profit, more recognition, more... And I think we all have. At times we've all felt like, enough of this already. I I just assume do without. Well, that is the flame, tiny as it may be, of renunciation in your own heart. Understanding that more is not always better. So we all have somewhere in us this archetypal energy of living simply, living without, but not depriving ourselves. So I want to talk about how it happens, or how how to understand this practice. Because it's not always a very severe discipline that you have to force on yourself. For instance, when you were a child and you had your favorite toy or your favorite friend or your favorite sport or musical instrument or whatever, you know, there was, a time, there was that time in your life when as soon as you woke up you were on the bike off to, to do whatever or you know, swimming or your sport or whatever it is. It's just like it was your life. It was the source of your happiness and it's just like if you couldn't just do it all day long you were, you know, unhappy. Right? We've all had periods of time when we would do that with something. Where is it now? Where's that bike? Where's that toy? Where's that friend? Where's that musical instrument? Whatever. It may actually be in the cellar or in the attic but it's not in your heart. It no longer serves to the force of happiness in you. Somehow, your heart just let go of it. Just like we would say, I outgrew that. But actually, it no longer serves our purpose for happiness. It didn't make us happy like it used to. And so, we just left it along the side. And we've done that with a lot of things, activities, people in our life. So, even even now, in our adult, in our adult years, we have not stopped growing. You might think that you know, yeah, once you once you hit whatever it is, at some point you kind of like 
well there. Now I'm an adult, I stop growing. And we kind of solidify. And yet, no, we keep we keep growing. If if we are so minded, if we if we understand that we keep growing. And what we might have considered essential in some early adult years, now not. Not, not, not so not so important, not so valuable. But we may not have recognized that we've outgrown it. <clears throat> Years ago, I used to be a great fan of the Grateful Dead. Still am. And um, love to go to the shows and trip around. And after I got involved in the Dharma practice, I was doing retreats and going to shows. And after I'd been in practice for a couple of years, I had this wonderful conjunction of conditions. I was going to do a two-week retreat at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts. Fourteen days. Calm down, clear out, open up, get sensitive. The dead were playing in Providence just an hour away on the last day of the retreat. <laughs> so, calm down, open out, get really sensitive, go to the show. It was unbearable. <laughs> it was so loud and so noisy and so impactful and so smoky and so whatever, which I used to love. I didn't realize that I had come to appreciate something else, a different kind of happiness. I still listen to the shows. I still listen to music. But going to the shows, no. Okay. So what I saw is that we outgrow things, but we don't know we've outgrown them. We still carry them around as kind of baggage in our heart, in our mind, in our phone book, or in our whatever phone, phone now. And so one of the, one of the, a skillful way of practicing renunciation is just to do a kind of a survey of what it is that you still have, what it is that you still do, who it is that you still hang out with, beliefs you have that no longer serve your highest aspiration. We're all practicing the Dharma now. Things have changed. Do you know what's changed? Have you let go? Have you consciously just... Not not let go because you're reluctant to. It's just like you've outgrown it. And can you acknowledge that? That this kind of behavior, this kind of belief, this kind of activity no longer serves your purpose. And to kind of do a survey, you know, of rummaging around in the attics of your life to let go, let go, let go. And this letting go is really making space in your heart for the Dharma, for your new uh, favorite friend, if you will. So that's how painless, actually, renunciation can be. The second kind of renunciation that I want to talk about is really one of the what the Buddha called three foundations of establishing your life in the Dharma. The three foundations for really getting your life stably planted in the soil of the Dharma are, of course, the development of the mind, like we're doing here, 
bhavana, practicing sila or living in harmony with one another, like we're doing here. And the third, or the first really, is the practice of generosity. Without recognizing our total dependence on others and others' dependence upon us and being willing to share, willing to share time, knowledge, love, resources, whatever, whatever is needed. Without understanding that, we don't get far. It's a, it's a kind of foundational understanding of the Dharma and the Sangha is that, you know, <coughs> excuse me, we're all dependent on each other. And sharing is the way that we, you know, care and support and, and are cared for and are supported in our practice. So this practice of generosity, as Mahasi Sayadaw, one of the grandfathers of this tradition, acknowledges that it is generosity that one can rely on for one's wealth, one's happiness, and one's humanity. Because when we are able to be generous, we recognize a feeling of abundance. So, in some sense, we feel wealthy. We have an abundance of knowledge, or time, or love, or resources, and we can, and, and wish to, and undertake the practice of sharing it. So just having that feeling of abundance immediately addresses the need to acquire more, and have, and do, and become. So it's already just having that sense of abundance that you can share is a form of letting go or it supports letting go, because we don't need more to feel that. And any time that we practice generosity, it is to someone. And they may have an, they may have an obvious need, you know, panhandlers on the street or the, at the intersection, or it may not be quite so obvious, but nevertheless, they still have a need. When we were able to do that, we, we connect at the most human level of uh, I care about you. I care about you. I want to share this with you. I want to offer you this. Could this be of help to you? And that is the source of a great happiness. I mean, whatever we give, whatever we offer when we're being generous, it's love. And there might be some token of resources or books or knowledge or time. But what we're really offering is, I see you as a human, like me. I care about you. How can I help? That, that, that. Coming from that place, you have to recognize your own humanity. And no matter who you're offering to, you recognize their humanity. I've told the story many times about going to one, one city here on the West Coast many years ago, and there's just a lot of homeless people and street people. And I never lived in a city, so I'm just not around them much. I know them. I see them occasionally, but I'm not around them close. I always live in the country. And, uh, yeah, I found that I was trying to avoid them. I was kind of like, kind of afraid of them. I just kind of didn't know how to relate to them. And I would, you know, try to come out, come out of the hotel and try to get to a restaurant without going by him because I didn't know how to relate to him. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel safe. And I, I didn't know. You know. I just 
was uncomfortable. But after I'd been there a few times, I, I realized, I'm, I'm suffering. Uh, I'm suffering with fear, anxiety. Uh, I don't understand. I don't know. I don't know what's expected of me. I don't know if I'm going to be taken advantage of, if, if I offer anything. So I was really uh, recognized, remembering to recognize the present moment's experience of fear, anxiety, confusion, doubt. And so I said, well, who is going to do anything about my fear? <laughs> They're not going to do anything about my fear. Only I can do something about my fear. So I, I took it upon myself to meet and greet. So I would come out of the hotel, go right to the nearest person who was homeless or on the street or what a panhandler, and engage them in human contact. Hi, how's it going? How's your day? What do you need today? How much do you need? Well, oh, you get some really interesting conversations because they're not afraid to let you know either. But what I what I realized is that they're human beings. It's just, they, they're just like me, just like me. They have some unfortunate conditions that they're living with. They have some extraordinary needs that I don't have or are already met. And I had one, I'd have to say, wonderful conversations with them. And it's just for a minute, two, three minutes, and then offer them something. And both of us would be would recognize something of value in that interchange. It was like, it was great. You know, it, it didn't cost much. You know, even in the course of a year, it was a couple hundred dollars. But it was really impactful every day, every person that I met. Here's a dollar, here's two dollars, whatever. So this is how we remember to recognize the present moment, especially our suffering, and what is going to address it. What can we do to address our suffering? Because the Buddha said, if beings knew as I know the result and benefit of generosity, they would not let any opportunity go by without sharing. What did the Buddha know about sharing? So, when we practice generosity, when we want to be generous, we have to learn to let go. We, we have to learn to let go of the object that we want to offer, whether it's a dollar or a book or some time. But we have to also learn, and this is what makes it such a foundational practice in the Buddhist teachings or let planting our life in the Dharma, is that we learn to let go of attachment. We're attached to stuff. We're attached to ideas, we're attached. And just learning to let go of that in the practice of generosity to even panhandlers, beggars, is learning how to let go of attachment. And that's the whole practice of the Second Noble Truth. Learning to abandon craving, abandon clinging, abandon attachment. So this is the first practice that Buddha always said the Buddha always talked about the practice of generosity first because it's not even Buddhist practice. But everybody everywhere recognizes the value of generosity or generous people in their lives. <clears throat> and so the Buddha said, a wise person gives a gift carefully. 
gives it with their own hand, person face to face, gives it showing respect to the other person, gives a valuable gift, and gives it with the understanding that something good will come of it. Being simple, being humble, being genuine, letting go, non-attachment, having some love in your heart for the person that you're offering gifts to, or some acceptance at least, maybe compassion. This can only help our own heart. There's another quote about giving, generosity. The Buddha said, the gift of the Dharma excels all other forms of giving. The gift of the Dharma excels all other forms of giving. Now, when I first read that, I thought, oh, those who give the Dharma, those who share the Dharma, teach the Dharma, that's there. They're offering the greatest gift. Well, that, that, that's a great gift. That's true. But what I understand now is that as we do our practice here and we cultivate the qualities of awakening, love, compassion, understanding, effort, renunciation, and we understand suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the way to the end of suffering through our own practice, when we leave retreat or as we take up our role in our uh, domestic and civic social responsibilities, roles and responsibilities, we share the Dharma. We are a living example of the Dharma. Not, not perfect yet, of course, but somewhat. Because we are understanding, and we are patient, and we are more aware, and we are helpful, and we are generous, and we, are, we do want to speak the truth. So our practice here and being willing to live in our life with our Dharma values is a great gift to everyone that we share life with. You don't have to proselytize, you don't have to teach, you don't have to do that, that's, that's something else. But just the way we integrate Dharma understanding in our life, the way we live our life, will express the Dharma. And that's what it means. The gift of the Dharma, your gift of practicing, imbibing, inhabiting the Dharma, that's a great gift to give everyone. Huisaka was the Buddha's chief patroness, <clears throat> always wanted to be the, the one who set up the, the big shows, whenever there was big gatherings with the Buddha, she and uh, Anattapindika were the always wanted to be the donors. And she said, when I remember my acts of generosity, I'll be glad. When I'm glad, I'll be happy. And when my mind is happy, the body will be really tranquil. And when the body's tranquil, it'll feel really pleasant. And when I feel pleasant and pleasure like that, my mind will quite naturally become concentrated. And that will bring about the development of the spiritual faculties, the spiritual powers, and the factors of awakening. Generosity. Key to developing all the five faculties that we've been speaking about this whole retreat. 
or it supports that, supports the development of the mind that can cultivate these qualities. But it's about letting go. It's learning to let go of our attachment and let go of our possessions of knowledge, material goods, time, <coughs> love. Practice of sila also is a practice of renunciation. Now, most of us are not don't have bad sila, but it's non-harming. The, the, the agreements that we have with each other not to harm through killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, speaking untruths, or being deceptive, and the use of intoxicants. But as I mentioned earlier, you know, if you look at any news aggregator online or any front page of any newspaper, what you see is a catalog of human suffering and misery because people don't keep the precepts. And if we live in a world where this is, well, the norm, we are conditioned by that. We see deception all around us. It's everywhere. We tolerate, our society tolerates it, expects it, and rewards it. Whether it's Wall Street or Washington or any place else. We can't live in this society asleep and not be conditioned by that. So this is, this is why we, we practice mindfulness. Just remembering to recognize the present moment so that when you see, when your BS detector says, that's BS. You know it. You can tell. You know, and you don't collude with it. That you kind of, you, you may not, you may have to choose a skillful way to respond to it, but nevertheless, we're not colluding and we're not, we're not uh, encouraging. It takes a lot of integrity. It takes a lot of integrity. And I might ask, you know, have you, have you made a commitment? in your life, to always tell the truth. Always tell the truth. We'd like to say, we'd like to be able to say yes. Because if we can't say yes, then it means, well, we occasionally don't tell the truth. We lie. We deceive. We, we, we are incomplete in what we say. Or we intentionally mislead. For whatever reasons, because we're scared, we don't, want to, we don't want to be seen as we really are, or whatever. Just, it happens. Well, that, you know, that kind of shading may be the social lubricant that kind of keeps it all kind of smooth and kind of going, but it might not be sufficient for liberation. You know, the Bodhisattva spent hundreds of lifetimes perfecting the paramis before his last lifetime to become the Buddha. And it is said that in all those hundreds of lifetimes, the one thing he never did was not tell the truth. All the other precepts, gone. <laughs> but not that one. Because the Dharma is the truth. 
pursuing the Dharma, wanting to realize the Dharma, wanting to live in the Dharma, is to live with the truth, the way things really are, within ourselves and within our relationships. And so it's something that we need to reflect on and consider. What is it that we have to let go of in order to be honest? So we use behavior modification to let go. When I was in high school and in college, I used to smoke tobacco and other things, but tobacco, until the Surgeon General came out with this report that said, you know, if you continue to smoke, this is what your lungs are going to look like in five years, ten years, fifteen years. I go, ooh, ouch, that's not, that's not enviable. So, um, with that information, I gave up smoking. I liked the smoke. It was great. I, I mean, cigarette in the morning, cigarette after a meal, a cigarette with a beer, it was great. You know, but it was, it was clearly a lesser happiness compared to getting the potential diseases complications that come from years of smoking. So it's easy to give up that lesser happiness for the greater happiness of at least doing what I could to maintain my health. Norman Cousins says, wisdom is the anticipation of consequences. (laughs) Yeah, when you anticipate consequences, if they're they're going to be painful or less happiness, it's wisdom that says, don't go there. So the Buddha puts it, even though the pleasure is great, the regret is greater. And it is easy to do that which is of no real benefit to oneself, but it is difficult indeed to do that which is truly beneficial and good. One candy bar or two? <laughs> I mean, it comes right down to one candy bar or two. And uh, so when we... You know, when we come on retreat, we simplify. We're, this is about as simple a communal life as you can live and, and still kind of meet your needs. And yet there's something very satisfying about it. Why is it so hard to... I don't want to say live like a renunciate at home, but to simplify. To simplify and find that a similar source of satisfaction and contentment with less. Because when we're, when we're on retreat, you know, and we're practicing, what we come to see really clearly is that what we need for happiness and what can lessen suffering isn't for sale. It isn't. You know, whatever we buy, whatever we consume, whether it's activities or stuff, it's a little happiness, it's a little pleasure, it's a little satisfaction, but there's a cost to it, whether it's health costs or financial costs. So, when you're after uh, leading a three-month retreat, uh, when we would return home to Maui, we'd often go down to a resort and have a good meal, finally, after three months of retreat meals. (laughs) We'd go down to the resort, have a nice meal, so this year we went down to the resort 
had a nice meal, at the end of which we looked at the dessert card and picked a dessert, which was a chocolate, 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 chocolate <laughs> thing. And they brought the chocolate, 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 chocolate thing. And uh, we ate it. And it felt like lead in the belly after a great meal. <laughs> so out of kind of utter regret, if not frustration, I just blurted out, Ah, this is disgusting. I'm not going to eat any chocolate for a year. And he says, what'd you say? <laughs> I'm not going to eat any chocolate for a year. I'm just sick and tired of this habit. She said, you're kidding. I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> I said, well, if you're, if you're not going to eat chocolate, then I guess I'm not going to eat chocolate either. So we, we made this vow that we were, this uh, practice, that we weren't going to eat chocolate for a year. We gave ourselves one out, though. If, on a flight, we were upgraded to first class and got offered chocolate, <laughs> we could have it. <laughs> so, you know, you go to a restaurant, you have your meal, you look at the dessert card, and my eyes always saw the chocolate. Didn't see anything else, just chocolate. So now I had to start looking at other things. It's like, jeez. And at first, you know, the temptation was like, well, just, just one piece, one time. You know, but no, nope, I made a vow, not going to do it. And the first couple times, it was a little, a little challenging to kind of recommit to the vow, to the renunciation. But I did. And then, you know, after a few times of, should I, shouldn't I, well, uh, 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 then, it, then it got easier. It was just like, no, we'll do something else. Well, we made it through the year without chocolate, other than on the plane. And uh, there were two things that I learned. First of all, from this from this uh, little experiment, first of all, <clears throat> key lime pie is not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> and second is the power of a decisive commitment is unimaginable. If you make that kind of commitment for good reason, and you reaffirm it through the challenges of the first few times, and then it, then it really gets roots in your mind. It's a living in the dynamic thing, a commitment. And if you do that, it's really powerful. All kinds of benefits come that you can't imagine that support you in that. So it's worth you know, using knowledge, wisdom, to guide our actions, behaviors, and make by making these kinds of commitments to ourselves. Not necessarily to anyone else, but to ourselves. As Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda, or acknowledged to Carlos Castaneda, this decisive commitment to your aspiration, spiritual warriorship, he said, for this, a spiritual warrior needs prowess, strength, and above all else, sobriety. All these three put together give, as a result, an elegant life. So, we undertake the voluntary, you know, behavioral modification because of, you know, letting go of a lesser happiness for a greater happiness. But what we've been doing here, practicing mindfulness, is also a form of renunciation. Because you've seen 
how you know our conditioned mind reacts to events during the day. And every time we notice that the mind is off on a well, an indulgence of some sort, ranting, inner ranting about something, or whinging, whining, complaining, you know, suffering, being tormented somehow. When we see that, we let go. We we can find a way often to just let it go. If we're mindful of it instead of being in it, then we're not so tortured. We actually learn to let go through training the mind, where we get at least knowledge of our obsessive, compulsive uh, inner monologue. I think you've all seen that, right? I mean, we just have these habits of, you know, that are just, well, they're, they're like our personality now. They are so familiar and so habitual and so strong, you know, that we can kind of reclaim them as me, as mine. You know, as I acknowledged before, I <clears throat> I seem to have uh, not been born with a patience gene, and impatience seems to be my default setting towards most things, most challenges, most kerfuffles in life, just being impatient. But it's a practice, and so, but because I have seen impatience so often that it seems like. I can say I'm always impatient in every situation. I kind of solidify it into an eternal thing. And then I globalize it, say, in every situation. It's not just, it's just, I just, impatience seems to be the, the default setting that gets activated. And once we get this kind of owning it and eternalizing it and globalizing it, it's my impatience then we, it, it's just a slippery slope to this belief, I'm an impatient person. Once we have a belief like that about ourselves, in our heart, in our mind, I'm a depressed person, I'm a fearful person, I'm an impatient person. That belief is almost impossible to eradicate. As a momentary experience of impatience, if I notice it, when, I'm, when I do notice it, I can practice patience and put it aside, and it doesn't it doesn't spread to being global and eternal and an identity. But it takes seeing it as just a momentary occurrence, and that's that's how we claim to be an imperson, an, an impatient person, or a depressed person, or a fearful person, or a jealous person, or whatever your particular matrix of identities are, it's only because they have, have arisen frequently unnoticed. Now we have this belief. And, you know, you remember I talked about the three trainings of the Noble Eightfold Path. The training in wisdom is to uh, purify the mind or the heart of uh, latent torments. This is the latent torment. It's like a belief. We have a belief. And so it's purifying our understanding of ourself. We think, we feel like I am this way. And to uproot that from the mind takes... Well, how many times did I identify with impatience 
probably takes that many times of not identifying with impatience to, to uproot it. And so we have to be really patient and persistent, persevering in seeing these habits of mind. And I don't know if I meant, I think I mentioned it in one of the groups, that practice, our practice, mostly takes place between the mindfulness that can see this stuff and the lack of wisdom that can let it go. And that's where we that's where we practice. We see our stuff. We see our unskillful, you know, painful habits, obsessive, compulsive habits of mind. But we don't have enough wisdom yet to let go. The letting go is not intentional. It's from training the mind and uprooting misunderstanding. Last night, I also spoke about insight practice. It's this insight into the three conditions of the three characteristics of the impermanence of all things, the dukkha characteristic of all things, and the anatta characteristic or the emptiness, the the evanescent, the effervescent, the uh, transient nature of all experience. And when we practice the pasana and practice insight, these insights uproot or address and uproot, as I mentioned earlier, these three papanchas, this conceit, craving, and wrong view. Now, conceit is really the activity of comparing mind. We compare ourselves with others, or we compare others with us. We compare ourselves with how we'd like to be, with how we think we are. We compare ourselves with an ideal that we'd like to be. In all of these comparing activities of mind, reify a sense of self. I am this way. And in comparison to, you know, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, well, I'm... Yeah. But in comparison to some of the beggars on the street, well, I'm... You know, so... Same thing. I mean, I'm, I'm still the same person, but as we compare ourselves to others in different ways, we're greater than, less than, equal to. But it's the reification of a sense of self that gets constellated in this comparing mind. When we see this activity of mind and we understand the, imper- the anicca or the impermanent characteristic of it, no reified sense of self lasts for very long. Because you see the, you see, you're seeing everything through the lens of impermanence. The understanding of impermanence is now firmly embedded in your mind and you just see, oh, this, this judgment or this comparison, gone. Next, also gone. And it's through the knowledge of this insight that this compare, the activity of comparing mind is arrested and eventually uprooted. And so too with, with the dukkha characteristic. When we indulge in pleasant things and we crave pleasant experiences, it's because we don't see clearly the unsatisfactory nature of it. We're only focused on the pleasant, pleasant aspect of it. And yet, as I spoke about last night, 
Everything has the characteristic of dukkha. It's either painful, we know those, or if it's not painful and pleasant, but it's pleasant, it doesn't last. Or it's just oppressive, it's just kind of incessantly badgering us. I mean, just think. You leave your tree, you're going to have a good meal, go to your favorite restaurant. Let's just assume it's an Italian restaurant. You go to your favorite Italian restaurant, you get the favorite meal that you like, but now you find out that this is what you're going to have to eat for the rest of your life. Every meal. (laughs) That wouldn't be your favorite meal. That wouldn't be your favorite food for long. It's satisfying once. It's less satisfying twice. It's completely not satisfying the tenth time. It's not the thing that we're feeding. It's this sense of pleasure in me that is enjoying that gets fed by that. That's why we keep changing. We go to different restaurants every time. So that we, we, we keep feeding this sense of self that is satisfied, that can have and get and enjoy. But when you see through the lens of dukkha, you can see, well, this is either painful or it doesn't last. It's a false promise that this is, you know, that pleasure, accumulated pleasure is somehow going to equal happiness. It doesn't. You can have all the pleasure you want and still be miserable. But there's just this assumption in our mind that if life is, if, if life is just one pleasant activity after another, a pleasant experience after another, then we'll be happy. Right? Yeah. Or if I could just get what I want. You know, I've often had this assumption. If I could just get what I want, then I'll be happy. Doesn't that make sense? Doesn't that sound reasonable? It's not. <laughs> yeah. But when we, when we develop insight into the dukkha characteristic, then we see this. We see it. It's not like anybody's got to force it on us. We're seeing each moment's experience through this lens of this does not really provide any lasting happiness or any lasting foundation for stability or ease in the world. And so too with the wrong views, wrong views of identification with the self. You know, this is happening to me. This is my experience. This is who I am. The one who does this, the one who enjoys this, the one who becomes this, the one who you know, experiences this. And when we see, when we, as we develop the insight into the impersonal conditioned nature of all experience, it doesn't reflect a sense of self. It doesn't reflect a me. It's just, you know, it's like that rainbow. It's like, here I am, a colorful appearance due to causes and conditions in which there's really no substance. It's just ephemeral conditions that are changing all the time. And yet, it doesn't seem that way because, well, I'm not looking that carefully most of the time. But when we are looking that carefully and we are seeing through the lens of the impersonal conditioned characteristic, that's what we see. So this, this kind of insight is also a form of renunciation. We let go of these false identities. <coughs> Happiness George Dreyfus, Tibetan scholar and translator, said, happiness is not gratification on the hedonic treadmill, but it is a sense of well-being. 
practice shows us a way of feeling a sense of well-being without it being pleasant. True renunciation, Suzuki Roshi says, is not giving up the things of the world, but in knowing that they go away. And when you know that the things of the world, they just go away. You don't have to get rid of them. You don't have to push them away. You just have to let them go. And around this sense of self that we get so identified with, that is so ephemeral and evanescent, in the Diamond Sutta, the Buddha says, See, all of this world as a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And we know how insubstantial all of those things are. They're an appearance, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. They seem so real until you see that they're nothing. They're really empty of any essence. Here we are. And when we look, when we practice deeply and gain insight into these characteristics, this is what we'll see. This is how we will understand. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't enjoy the rainbow. It doesn't mean that you don't enjoy the dream. It doesn't mean that you don't enjoy the bubbles of the stream. It doesn't mean that you don't enjoy what's going on in your mind and body. But you don't take it for real. You don't take it for who you really are. So this practice of renunciation is our whole foundation of letting go. Letting go of all that we're clinging, holding on to, that no longer serves our purpose. Whether it's through outgrowing, or letting go through uh, discipline, or knowledge, letting go through insight, letting go through accessing the unconditioned. As Saito Utejaniya acknowledges, when your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. And when your values change, your priorities will change as well. And through such understanding, you will naturally want to practice more, and this will help you to do well in life. when your understanding of the true nature of things grows, this will help you to do well in life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.